Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. Newcastle Library's Heritage Collection contains more than 440,000 items in various formats from mayoral portraits and snowballs plate glass negatives to the original Menzies Declaration and the Creer and Berkeley Archive of Subdivision Maps. A wide range of Newcastle's stories are presented in the Library's Heritage Collection. Join us as we explore one piece from the Library's fascinating Rare Book Room. Welcome to our Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. I'm Kerry Shaw, Heritage Collections Digitisation Specialist at Newcastle Libraries. In this episode of Treasures from the Rare Book Room, we are continuing to explore the complex world of orchids. Claire Presser, our Digital Library Activation Specialist, has spoken to a variety of orchid lovers, botanists and a librarian to find out why Australian orchids are so special. Linda McPherson, author and volunteer at the Hunter Region Botanic Gardens, as well as Tony Clark, president of the Australian Native Orchid Society, Newcastle, Lachlan Copeland, Doug Beckers, Sally Stewart, and Peter Weston in discussing plant taxonomy, finding orchids in the wild, growing and conservation with the help of books like R.D. Fitzgerald's Australian Orchids, a collection that forms part of Newcastle Library's treasures. We have orchids all through our landscapes in the Hunter. And I'll stress there's still a great deal about orchids we don't know. We're still learning all the time and finding new species and finding out that what we thought was one big variable species is in fact two or three species. And Hunter's being in southern part of Australia, it's dominated by terrestrial orchids. So I'm guessing maybe 20, maybe 30 of the most epiphytic or lithophytic orchids growing on trees or rocks and then well over 100 ground orchids. What's interesting about this area is there's still remnant populations of lithophytic and epiphytic orchids very close to Newcastle and like Macquarie City and highly urbanised areas. We've got a little vestige of uh, coastal rainforests in the Glendrock recreation area. Nelson Bay, Port Stephens is the best coastal spot in all of New South Wales for orchids, I think. And the Dudley area. Around Lemon Tree Passage area. You go up to the Marrington Tops, which is high altitude basalt. There are lots of orchids that grow in Glenrock, SCA. Also at Lake Macquarie, got the Greenpoint Reserve. Then you go out west into the sandstone country in the northern bit of Wollamai National Park or Golden River National Park. There are orchids that grow in Tomaree National Park and Port Stephens. The Hunter Region Botanic Gardens has about 130 hectares and we have cultivated gardens of course but most of that is native pristine bushland. That's a fantastic spot the Hunter Botanic Gardens it's you know lots of planted stuff there of interest too but they've got some really good woodlands for native edge and that supports all sorts of wildlife it's an absolute treasure that space that we are custodians of 
It's a treasure trove of flora and fauna. We're so lucky to have it. And you volunteer at the Botanic Gardens. Yes, I started volunteering because I wanted to sort of give something back uh, and also Deputy Chairman now as well. So I have a, a lot of my time is taken up. My name is Linda McPherson and I commenced a university degree called Natural History Illustration in 2011. The Hunter Region Botanic Gardens became a fantastic source of flora for me to do research work with, drawing, sketching, observing. And it was there in 2011 that I came across native terrestrial orchids and I was just blown away that these gorgeous little things could just pop up naturally. When I'm doing field work, I can generally come across orchids anytime. So yeah, the hunter's got sort of a lot of different diverse habitats and, and as a result, you've got quite a diverse orchid flora. Surrounded by humanity and housing, but they're still hanging in there. They've still got these little vestiges of Australian native lithophytes, nepophytes. So they can occur right across in all of our landscapes, except for in our sort of really saline systems. This is Doug Beckers, Senior Conservation Planner, New South Wales Parks and Wildlife. So, for example, I cannot recall ever seeing an orchid in a mangrove, for example. In Asia, there are orchids that grow in mangroves, not our mangroves. I'd love to know if anybody has seen an orchid in a mangrove, that's for sure. I'd be absolutely rapt to see one of those. You're always assessing what's out there in terms of orchid publications. You're listening to Lachlan Copeland, Senior Botanist for Ecological Australia. And our methods to investigate orchids and their relationships is constantly evolving as well. There's a much stronger emphasis on DNA analysis now in the last 10 or 15 years than what they used to be. And that's sort of giving us new insights into, you know, leak orchids and their, their relatives and uh, what we used to know sort of as a broad presophyllum is it looks like it's um, what we call paraphyletic, which is sort of not a natural continuous lineage. It sort of needs breaking up into smaller genera. Did you hear the cliff notes for taxonomy? Peter Weston from the National Herbarium of New South Wales. Okay. I guess the word taxonomy has been applied a lot more broadly. I think in the original sense, taxonomy was the science of naming plants, animals and other organisms. So, yeah, the taxonomy system is hierarchical. So you can think of it as like being a bunch of boxes nested within boxes. And in the case of the orchids, all of the orchids constitute the family Orchidaceae. And then there are subfamilies, there are five subfamilies of orchids, which are boxes within that box of orchids. Then within the subfamilies, you have tribes, which are smaller boxes. And within the tribes, you've got genera, the singular of which is genus. And then within the genera, you have species. And in taxonomy, there's also intervening categories, if you like, like subgenera and subfamilies and so on. And that corresponds logically to a tree-like structure. So you can draw a classification as a, a like a tree-like diagram with the species, the, the smallest units in that system at the tips of the, the branches of the tree. So that's how the, the system of biological classification works. And this is a bit of a digression, but the history of that's quite interesting because, you know, we, we 
had a hierarchical system of classification as early as the, the 18th century. It was instituted by Linnaeus, a Swedish botanist, and Linnaeus had no idea about evolutionary biology at all. And the reason he chose a hierarchical system is because that was what was favoured by Greek philosophers like Aristotle 2,500 years ago or whatever. It just happened that you know, Charles Darwin, when he explained his theory of evolution, pointed out that that system of boxes within boxes or, or tree-like relationships was actually completely consistent with a system of descent with modification or changing lineages, lineages that evolved and then split. So each of the, the lineages was like the branch of a tree and each of the branching points where the lineages split is like a node of a tree where you get branches going apart, you know. So a system that was completely had nothing to do with the theory of evolution when it started turned out to be evidence for evolution in Charles Darwin's hands. I've seen the vast majority of orchids in the hunting. I could roll off over 100 names at sort of the Barrington Tops. I named a very rare leek orchid after my good friend, Bill. It's Prasophyllum holzingeri, which is only at a few spots in the Barrington Tops. This is another botanical rule. Mm-hmm. You're not allowed to name a plant after yourself. This is Sally Stewart librarian at the Royal Botanic Gardens, Victoria. So if you want to have a a species named after you, you make good friends with a botanist or a zoologist or an entomologist and influence them greatly and they might one day name an insect or a plant or something after you. Often you'll see a plant name and it might have L next to it and that's a plant that was first described by Linnaeus or it might have Fitz next to it, which so all the plants that have an orchid name and then in brackets Fitz, that's a plant that Fitzgerald first described. So it gives you a clue as to who the first, not discoverer, but the first describer of the plant was. It's part of the name, but it's not part of the scientific binomial. There's a lot of Prasophyllum leek orchids up there. It's got about three or four endemic greenhoods, sort of in that broader Pterostylus genus and this Pterostylus barringtonensis. Things ending in ensis generally mean restricted to that particular area. This particular orchid is called Bulbophyllum minutissimum. Now, minutissimum means really, really small. And the reason why it's called minutissimum is the flowers on this orchid are only three millimetres wide. I mean, that is absolutely tiny, isn't it? question that comes to mind is how important were these books at that particular time? Like we're talking about Flora Australiensis and the Australian orchid books, especially for people that I almost want to say couldn't get here or couldn't explore fully. Well, the Flora Australiensis, that was the treatise of the time. That was the Bible of Australia's flora. Fitzgerald obviously focused on the one family or order which is Orchidaceae, because it was visually represented or illustrated, it was extremely informative to people all around the world. As a utilitarian object, the Flora Australiensis, even though it's seven volumes, is wonderfully compact and much smaller (laughs) than um, (laughs) Fitzgerald's book. So the people going out into the field, it would be the book of choice to take with them. So he probably did take his set with him when he went to Lord Howe Island because that was where he found some plants that he definitely didn't think had been included. We've got this orchid that has been found by a hunter local, Marie Elliott, and she curates the fungi collection at the Hunter Region Botanic Garden. And so she's been involved with collecting fungi specimens 
for government departments. Anyway, she was looking up in Barrington Tops National Parks for fungi, and she uncovered this rare underground orchid. So it has maybe 20 or 30 flowers, but they all fit within the the size of a 50-cent piece. So the flowers are only tiny as well. So in 2016, when she found it, it was possibly related to another orchid that was found at Bulladilla. But as it turns out, it is a brand new species. And so this plant, which is called Rhizanthella speciosa, and speciosa means special. We only know of 50 individuals of this orchid that occurs in Barrington Tops National Park. It's incredibly special. Perhaps the most important job that herbaria do is actually document diversity out there. So all of the stuff I was telling you about taxonomy is crucial for conservation because you can't conserve plants that you don't know about. And it's quite difficult conserving them if they don't have names. Even if they have nicknames, it's better than nothing. And when I say nicknames, you know, we, we give plants nicknames when we've, we think we've worked out what the species are, but we haven't actually published anything yet. And when we publish our work on, in taxonomy, that's when we formally give different kinds of plants names. When I finished my PhD in about 2005 on plant taxonomy, I sort of felt like I needed a new challenge and I was already passionate about orchids back then. So I started my book on the orchids of northern New South Wales and then um, unfortunately got sidetracked for 10 or 15 years and did bits and pieces. But a good friend of mine, Gary Backhouse, who's sort of the orchid guru, I should say, he's written a lot of the definitive works for Victorian orchids. He said, how about we get together and write a book on New South Wales orchids? Because there's a real gap there. There's been sort of nothing comprehensive since about 1996. Orchid enthusiasts have sort of had nothing to sort of guide them for what's in New South Wales for decades now. A lot's happened since then. So Gary and I got together and um, after hundreds and hundreds of hours of writing and fixing things up, we've finally got a good manuscript together and submitted to CSRO Publishing. And we've about 450 pages, including 582 orchid species all the named species and all the undescribed or unnamed species we could think of. So, yeah, that'll be exciting. That'll come out hopefully in January next year and it'll fill that gap of, um, you know, it'll help people in the field identify things. And it's worth pointing out that it's just a snapshot in time. It's sort of the opinions of Gary and myself about orchids in New South Wales at this particular time. Um, in reality, in five years' time, there'll probably be a need to redo it or we're sort of we're still finding two or three new orchids in New South Wales every year. So you can guarantee there'll be more stuff to add in a couple of years' time. But yeah, really looking forward to that book, Guide to Native Orchids of New South Wales and ACT. Do you have any idea how many different types of orchids are actually in the botanic gardens? Yes, well, at the time of writing second edition of my book, I had located and illustrated 30. Because I'm a botanical illustrator, I also paint all of these orchids. And since that second edition has come out uh, early this year, I've found another three. What drove you to write the book? Was it literally just to document what was in the Hunter Region Botanic Gardens? It was initially um, a part of my honours degree, that little book, as well as a nature diary. I did a huge poster uh, so that you can look at a glance and see at any time of the year what orchid would be in flower. So they're all illustrated and they're on this poster at, against the time of the month that they will flower. That's how the book came about, but also to help to raise funds 
for the gardens because we don't get any government funding. We just rely on grants and entrance fees, uh, any little bit like that will help to raise funds for the gardens and to raise awareness of native terrestrial orchids and uh, hopefully people will take more notice of them and appreciate them as much as I do. Oh, look, I agree. And, and the thing about the story about this underground orchid that Marie found is that she undertook a quest to go out and seek and find new things. And she obviously had a really good eye for nature as well. And so she knew what she was looking for with regards to fungi. But when she did see something that was special, she was able to identify it as something special. And you can really only get that from many years of observation. It's an absolute credit for her for finding it. A lot of our members are interested in doing field trips. In the past, we've done one or two field trips a year. That could be anywhere from the Brokenback Range, the Waddingons, etc. I'm Tony Clark. I'm the president of the Australasian Native Orchid Society in Newcastle Group. We've been established since mid-60s. The objectives of our constitution state that we um, cultivate and, where possible, um, conserve native orchids. So there's an interest there, general interest there of our members. The New South Wales government has a Save Our Species program. We've got funding for works covering orchids in Glenrock, uh, SCA, Barrington Tops, Tomaree in Munmora. And some of those works include propagating of orchids. It could be restricting access to prevent cars going into the bush and running over them. Weeding, surveying, monitoring. We incorporate it into the planning works like the Tomaree Coastal Walk where orchids played a special part in the planning of that piece of infrastructure that's being constructed as we speak. Pig control, erosion control, and even the appropriate ways we manage fire in the bush affects the way we manage orchids. They're the sort of actions that we're doing through projects. Only recently, on the 7th of September, we've also had things called assets of intergenerational significance declared. So on the 7th of September, which is National Threatened Species Day, New South Wales government set a target by 2030 to improve or stabilise all the on-park trajectory of all threatened species. So we want to improve or stabilise threatened species. We don't want to see them go extinct. That's a really important target to set. What it means is that some areas within Tomaree National Park that are specific assets of intergenerational certificate targeted at a local orchid in Tomaree National Park. And what that means is that we, we have to manage those areas to absolutely make sure that those orchids are kept safe and their trajectory towards extinction is actually improved or stabilised so that we don't want to see anything going extinct and we have to manage those sites accordingly. It's actually really exciting. And so we've got an orchid species in the hunter that's going to be managed as assets of intergenerational significance. Is there any way if members of the public want to be involved in conservation or anything like that? Is there any way that people can help out? They can. I think one of the best ways is it's actually using Facebook. There are two groups on Facebook. There's the New South Wales Native Plant Identification Facebook group, and then there's the Australian Indigenous Plants Facebook group. And if folks see an orchid, they can take a photo of it and post it to these two Facebook groups and somebody will be able to identify that orchid for them. It is a fantastic group to get 
folks involved with ORCID, and then there are ORCID conservation discussions throughout those groups. I just wanted to take the opportunity to outline that if people see orchids in the wild, it's best not to mess with them or try and take them home or anything like that. Yeah, look, Claire, in this day and age, just come to the orchid shows and you can buy these at a song, these orchids, and please leave what you see in the bush alone because you can buy some lovely native orchids at a, at a bargain price. And most of the members aren't interested in making a profit out of it. They just want to get rid of excess plants. So please come to our orchid shows and if you're interested in native orchids. And hopefully with the introduction of the podcast, you get more people keen to come along to ANOS meetings. Yes, the fourth Thursday of the month, the Yellowmore Community Hall. Our meetings are now, they never used to be like this, but about the mid-90s we started having judge shows. So at the end of the year, the person who's benched the most good quality plants as assessed by the judges wins that point score. I mean, they get a little trophy for it or something. It doesn't really, there's no monetary reward, just this recognition. We'll open the meeting. It's a formal meeting. We open it at 7.30. During those meetings, from time to time, you'd have a guest speaker too. And then we'll have a, a break in the middle of the meeting and then people will get up and they'll do a member's choice of the orchids that have been benched as well as a judge's choice. So at the end of the meeting, we announce what the judges thought were the best plants and what the members thought were the best plan. So it's, it's a pretty good assessment, really. Just a good night for people to become familiarised with our native orchids. Do they have to sign up to be a member first to come along to the meetings? Can they? They can come as a visitor. They're welcome as a visitor. And just observe. More than welcome. Just while we're on the topic of orchid clubs, and before we wrap up this three-part series on Australian orchids, I wanted to take this opportunity to share a tale about how Newcastle Libraries came to have R.D. Fitzgerald's publication in our collection. Whilst there isn't much information in our catalogue about the bequest, our local history team had a look at the items and they have a little bit of information in them. Namely, that we have a cataloguing stamp from the Newcastle School of Arts from 1969, a stamp saying Newcastle Orchid Society, as well as two different donation inscriptions from a Mr. C. McGilvery and a Mr. J.B. Dean. With the help of Shirley Hilton from the Newcastle Orchid Society, who has an exceptional written history of the group, we were able to discover that Charles Lyndon Bird McGilvery was the second president of the society from August 1950 to November 1951, and Garnet Dean was the secretary from November 1951 to 52. It is supposed that the collection is an amalgamation of the two personal collections that were gifted to the society, and then the society passed them on to us. One final factoid we uncovered with Shirley is that both McGilvery and Dean were instrumental in fundraising for the War Memorial Cultural Centre, the building in which the Newcastle City branch now resides. And they did this fundraising through a series of orchid balls. So everything comes full circle. Thanks so much for listening to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. To access and browse Newcastle Library's collections, please visit our website at newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. To view our heritage collection, just Google Hunter Photo Bank. The online collection is constantly being added to as items are digitised and loaded, so be sure to visit often. This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production.